0: Grab your Bible and turn with me to Luke chapter seven, if you will, as you're finding your place there. Legend has it, there was a man who was stuck out in the desert, lost out in the desert, and he was fumbling around and trying to find a source of water, trying to find a source of of help in any way he could. And so, Dying from thirst, he finally stumbled across an old shack out there in the middle of the desert. This shack had been there uh, for quite a while, and you could tell. I mean, it was dilapidated. It had no windows in the, in the walls. It was roofless. Uh, weather had just beaten it to a pulp. I mean, it was a decrepit, nasty old place. But thankfully, it provided a little bit of shade as he walked up and began to look around. And the sun was beating down on him. It was hot, and uh, as you would... Imagine it being in a desert, and so he found a little bit of shade, sat down there, trying to figure out what his next move is going to be. Obviously needs water, he could use some food, and he needs to know its direction to go to find help. As he sat there on the ground in the shade, glancing around, he saw an old rusty pump. So he got up and he walked over to the pump about 15 feet away. This was an old rusty water pump. And he began to take that old pump and, and move the handle up and down. It just squeaked like crazy, but no water came out of it. So discouraged, he turned around and walked over, stumbled back over to where he was sitting previously in the shade. He sat there, kind of disillusioned about the whole thing little hopeless, and he looking around for some other help, and he notices this, that there's this jug over on the other side of the pump, something, something he had missed earlier. So he gets up, walks back over there, and he picks this old jug up, and he begins to look at it, wiping away the dust that had been collecting there for a number of months, and he saw that there's a message on it. So he wiped the, the jug clean, he saw the message, and it said this, you have to prime the pump with all the water that's in this jug. P.S., Be sure to fill it up again when you leave. Well, he was excited about that. He takes the cork off the jug. He looks in in it, and sure enough, it's full of water. I mean, he hadn't drank water in a a couple days. He's dying of thirst, and here's water before him. And yet the message on the bottle says you need to pour it into the pump to prime it, and if you do that, it seems like you're going to get more water. And so immediately he's thrust into this Uh, a decision that he's got to make, the different possibilities. He's got a jug full of water that could quench his thirst. He's also got a jug full of water that if he pours it into the pump and primes it, has the propensity to give him more water, cooler water, and fresher water. And so the dilemma, what is he going to do? Should he waste the water on the hopes of a flimsy message on a bottle uh, that who knows how long it's been since it was written? Uh, we don't know anything about the pump. We don't know that it's actually going to work. We don't know if it's rusted shut and it's going to provide water. And so he's deliberating on this decision that he has to make. Well, reluctantly, he takes that jug of water and he pours it into the pump to prime it. He grabs the handle of that pump and he begins to move it up and down. You, you remember those old time water pumps? If you like Westerns, you've seen them there. Maybe your grandma used to have one outside of her, their house. But that old-time pump, he's pumping it up and down, up and down. It's squeaking to high heavens. Nothing happens. He pumps it some more, and still nothing happens. He keeps pumping that pump, and all of a sudden, just a little bit of trickle begins to come out of that pump. He continues to pump. Then there's a small stream, and all of a sudden, a gushing stream of water comes flowing out of that rusty pump. So he fills the bottle with all of that cool fresh water. He drinks it down. He fills it up again, drinks it down, and then he fills it up a third time, puts the cork in it for the next traveler. As he did that, he found a little piece of uh, pencil there in that old rackety shack, and he took that bottle, and he added to the message that was already there, and he said this, believe me, it really works. You have to give it all away before you can get anything back. Put that jug down, and he went on his way. You know that old legend or that story depicts what we might think of or call the exercise of faith. Describing what faith is, Leighton Ford said this. He says, Christian faith is more than a dogma. He says, it does not just say, I believe, but says, I believe, and therefore I obey. Now, Ford didn't land on this. Decision. He didn't land on this understanding of faith on his own. That's exactly what the Bible presents to us about faith. The Bible talks about faith or the concept of faith in the manner of obedience. That we would hear God's word, obey God's word, stake our lives upon God's word. In fact, that's explicitly what we see in Hebrews chapter 11. I want you to listen to these verses that you probably know very well. The writer of Hebrew here, Hebrews here describes faith. He says in verse 1, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for. It's the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. If you know the contents of Hebrews chapter 11. You know that it's what we call, many times, call the hall of faith. It depicts the great men and women of our faith who walked by faith. In this chapter, it defines and portrays for us what faith is, what it looks like. You see, in each and every account, faith was validated not just simply by saying they believed something, but they obeyed what they had been told. For instance, in the book of Hebrews chapter 11, it talks about Noah and how Noah received that warning about the floodwaters of judgment, and it moved him to construct the ark. We see there in Hebrews 11 that Moses... When he left Egypt, he was seen by faith, him who is invisible. We learn about Abraham, who heard the call of God to go out, to get up and leave his home. And he did just that, going to a place he did not know where, but it was the promised land God had told him about. We see in all of the men and women of Hebrews 11 that they demonstrated real faith. You see, from them we learn that real faith, it's an exercise in reality that they understand their situation they understand their own lives they understand what the Word of God says they rightly saw themselves their situations and the Lord's Word same is true of the centurion here in Luke chapter 7 who was in Capernaum that's what we're gonna look at this morning faced with the reality of his servants terminal condition that he was on death's door this centurion chose to believe on and to believe in Jesus Christ. Over the next several weeks we're gonna work our way through Luke chapter seven. But this is a beautiful chapter. It gives us five different scenes from the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what we see in this this chapter and then these five scenes is that the Lord is interacting with humanity in really some of the most profound and yet some of the most ordinary of circumstances. In the first scene, Jesus goes to the sickbed of this servant owned by a Roman centurion. In the second scene, the Lord meets a funeral procession with a grieving widow who has lost her only son and ministers to her. Then he receives a question from John the Baptist who is imprisoned and beginning to suffer with doubt. Are you the Messiah or should we wait for another is his question. The fourth fourth scene features a conversation between the Lord and the crowds that were traveling with him. And then we're going to finish Luke 7, looking there at this fifth scene where Jesus goes to the house of a Pharisee. And there in that house, he does not receive what he should have received from the Pharisee. But a woman caught in sin comes before the Lord and begins in humility to wet and to wash his feet with her hair and her tears. That's where we're going to be over the next several weeks. But look there in verse 1 this morning, and let's look at what the Lord wants to teach us and tell us about himself from the story of this Roman centurion. Verse 1, Luke says, And after he, that's Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus... He sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and to heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, Lord, he's worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. But say the word. And let my servant be healed. For I to him am a man set under authority, with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And When those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. In this story, Jesus, as we have read, has again come to Capernaum. Uh, It's really the base of his ministry during his three years traveling around the area of Palestine. Back in February, some of us got to visit Capernaum. We got to go to the place of most likely where that synagogue resided. We got to see what the city was like. And so, this was the hub of Jesus' ministry in this day. This situation takes place not long after Jesus finishing what we've been working through called the Sermon on the Plain. And so as Jesus is now in Capernaum, he's kind of getting settled. All of a sudden, a knock is at the door, and these, these elders of the synagogue have been sent by the Roman centurion to ask this man's, this Lord's help with the servant. And so this Gentile sent these Jews, choosing to believe in and on Jesus for help. He exercised real faith that was grounded in the reality of the situation. He understood that this man was terminal. He understood that there was no hope for this man. And Jesus was his only hope. Jesus is here, full of love and grace. All of that's on full display as he goes to the terminally sick servant. And what we learn from the centurion is what we need to see this morning. I want us to look at what faith involves and what faith requires. We need to put ourselves in the shoes of this Roman centurion and exercise faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what was a Roman centurion? Well, these men were common throughout the Roman Empire. They were equivalent in rank to a modern-day army captain. They normally commanded a hundred men in the army. Another thing that was common in the Roman Empire was death. You see, back then, The average life expectancy was about half of what it was, or I should say, what it is today. Along with that, what we know from history is that Roman soldiers were known for their use of force. They were known for their brutality. They were not known for their grace. They were not known for their forgiveness. They were not known for their kindness. But what we see in this man is something very different. This Roman centurion had a different heart. He loved his servant who was dying. You see, slaves were not ordinarily valued by their master in that day. They were slaves. They were commodities. They were a person who was there to get a job done. And if you couldn't do the the job, you got another slave, another servant to do the job. And yet what Luke tells us about this Roman centurion is not only did he value his servant, but he highly valued his servant. On top of that, Luke tells us that this Roman centurion loved his subjects, The the elders that come to to Jesus there in Capernaum, they tell him, they say, he loves this city. He has given us, he has built us our synagogue. They're arguing and making the case that this Roman centurion is not like all the other Roman centurions. This man has a good heart. This man is favorable to us. This man is different. And so Jesus goes with them. When this Roman centurion learned of Jesus... He immediately sends these elders to Jesus. Why did he do that? He's asking for help. And so, in doing so, I believe this man was saying something that we need to say every day of our lives toward Jesus. He's saying, I believe. I believe in you. you. see, this statement of the heart needs to be exercised by all of us as we place our faith in and on Jesus, obviously for salvation, but also as a follower of Jesus every day saying, Lord, I believe your word. Lord, I believe what it says. Lord, i want to follow it to the letter in my life. And so this morning, I want us to look at what faith involves three things and then what faith requires two things. First of all, faith involves a humble recognition of Jesus' power. Faith involves a humble recognition of Jesus' power. Now, we don't know if this man had ever sat under the teaching of Jesus. Luke doesn't give us any details in regard to that. We don't know that he sat there under the teaching. We don't know that if, whether or not he was present when Jesus had been in Capernaum before. Remember, if you've been with us, uh, back in Luke chapter 4, Jesus did many miracles in the city of Capernaum. Uh, he cast out a demon-possessed man. He goes to Simon Peter's house, and, and there he heals many people that were brought to him. So we don't know if he was a fly on the wall and watching that and observing that and sitting under the teaching of Jesus. We don't know any of those things. But what is obvious is that this man had heard of Jesus' teaching and had heard of Jesus' miracles. So when he gets the word that Jesus has come back to Capernaum, he's been up in the north, now he's come back to this northern side of the Sea of Galilee, into this town called Capernaum, it's obvious that that this man has heard of Jesus, so he sends word to get him to come. He's probably heard the stories. He's probably maybe even talked to some of the people who had been healed by Jesus before. And so he sends for the Lord. He sins so that he might come and to heal the servant. It raises a question. I don't know if the thoughts went through your head, but as I studied this this past week, I began to think, why would a Roman centurion ask for Jesus' help? He's a gentile. He's a pagan. He's an officer in the army. Surely the best medical care that Rome had to offer was at his discretion. Why would he come to Jesus? Why would he ask Jesus, a Jew? Why would he look at this Palestinian phenom and say, I need your help in my life and with my servant? I believe that it's highly likely he had already exhausted all of his options. Roman medicine had not cured the servant. His Roman gods also had not been able or not willing to heal the servant as he had pleaded on their behalf. The religious curiosity of this man, I believe, had also brought him to a place of acceptance. He's saying to himself, Jesus has healed these people. Jesus has cast out demons from those people. Surely he can do something for my servant. So he comes, or at least he sends couriers to bring Jesus to himself. This man humbly sent the elders to request help because he had reached the point where he recognized that Jesus alone had the power to heal. The Roman gods could not do it. Roman medicine could not do it. Nothing in this world could help his servant. But in his mind, he believed Jesus could. Think about that. There are days in our lives when absolutely everything is crumbling around us and we wonder what in the world are we going to do? How are we going to make it? And then we begin to think, Jesus can step in. Jesus is powerful. And so if we're going to faith into Jesus, if we're going to follow Jesus by faith, it requires a humble understanding, a humble recognition that Jesus alone has power. Paul picks up on this, speaking of what it means to be to experience salvation. He says in Romans 1 verse 16, For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God. For salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. So as we look at this, we understand that faith involves you and I recognizing that Jesus alone possesses the power through his death, his burial, and resurrection to heal the brokenness caused by sin. There's a second thing faith involves, and that is a humble invitation for Jesus' presence. Jesus was invited, verse 3, to come and to heal his servant. This man sends these elders to Jesus to invite him to bring his presence to where he was so that his servant could be healed. You see, the centurion knew enough about Jesus to understand that his healing power was tied to his presence. And as we think about that statement, it might be just a little bit confusing. In other words, is Jesus' presence always tied, or is, it, is his power to heal and to save always contingent upon his physical presence in a person's life? That's an interesting question to debate. I believe the answer is no. In other words, can Jesus heal at a distance? Absolutely, Jesus can heal at a distance. In fact, Luke doesn't even give us an indication or a record of the fact that Jesus actually stood at the bed of this servant because the man sent more servants to say, hey, Jesus, don't come under my roof. I'm not worthy of that. So Jesus doesn't have to physically be present. To heal you, to touch your life, to move in your life, but His presence is connected to his power. What do I mean by that? Jesus is not in the business of just making your life better. Jesus is in the business of making your life good with him. In other words, he's not in the business of about, uh, uh, he's not in the, the business of making you more religious. He's in the business of bringing you into relationship. That's what Jesus is driving at. He doesn't want us to be more religious, more active in our religiosity. He wants us to walk in faith and walk in step with Him and His Word. Jesus is the one who spoke the cosmos into existence, so it's nothing for Him to speak a word and someone on the other side of the world to be healed just like that. And yet, Jesus comes. See, He wants to do more in our lives than just heal our infirmities. He wants to transform us from religion to relationship. And so this man humbly invited Jesus to come to his home. He knew he needed more than religious actions. What this man needed, what his servant needed, was a personal relationship with the one who could heal. And so he says, Lord, would you come to my house? As we consider what it means for us to personally declare, I believe, we see that it involves an invitation for Jesus' presence. Faith involves just that. For you and I to walk in faith, we need to invite Jesus into our lives as Lord and Savior to heal the brokenness caused by sin. But there's a third requirement, or a third thing that it involves. A humble conviction of Jesus' authority. Look with me in verse 6. It says, and Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word, and let my servant be healed. For I, to him, a man is set under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. We see here that this Roman centurion accepted something about Jesus that many of his disciples obviously didn't accept. What do I mean by that? He says, Lord. If you go back a couple weeks ago when we were finishing out Luke chapter 6, Jesus says, why do you call me Lord and not do what I say? So there's obviously someone who would say, Jesus, you're my Lord. Jesus, I'm following you. Jesus, I believe in you. And yet they didn't actually follow through in what he said and told them to do. And here's a, a pagan man. Here's a centurion, a Roman centurion, a Gentile, who refers to Jesus as Lord. And by using this title, he's conveying an understanding of two things. He knew he was not personally worthy before the Lord. That's why he says, "I stay here. Just speak the word. Just say it and he will be healed. I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof. Secondly, he knew the power of Jesus' word. Just say the word. Just speak and it will be as you say. And so the centurion understood that part of what it means to call Jesus Lord is to admit his authority over one's life. For this reason, he asked Jesus in verse 7, just simply speak the word. As a man of authority, he was keenly aware of the authority that is in the spoken word. He he possessed a humble conviction of Jesus's authority over his life. You know, Jesus really is Lord. Jesus is the Lord of lords. He is the King of kings. He is preeminent in all things. And this man understood that. So as we consider what it means for us to personally declare, I believe we see it involves a conviction of the Lord's authority. Faith involves us believing Jesus has authority as Lord and Savior to heal the brokenness in our lives. We've seen this already if you were in small group this morning. In 2 Kings 22, you see the reason judgment came upon the kingdom of Judah is because they neglected and forsook the word of God to walk in faith and to walk in obedience. But here's a man that says, Jesus, if you'll just speak the word, it'll take place in my life. I believe in you, and I'm believing on you to do that. Faith involves those three things. Let me give you two things that it requires. First, faith requires rightly seeing oneself. Rightly seeing oneself. Before the 17th century, if... Someone was wanting to know if water was clean. If you're at the lake, or if you're at a pond, or maybe the river, and you know, maybe the water coming up out of a well you had dug, or some sort of cistern. They would take and dip it, and they would hold it up in the light, you know, a glass cup of some sort. Or they would look down into the clear water, and what they're looking for is whether or not it has anything moving in it, right? Or obviously anything on the top. If you go to a pond this time of year, mostly... And most places, you're going to see that algae on the top. and it just Who's going to drink that stuff? Nobody, right? And so they want to look and see if there's any critters crawling around in the water. And so if they were able to look up in a glass jar and see nothing floating in the water, they'd say, this is clean, we can drink it. Or this is clean, we can use it for, for cooking and eating. If they saw something in it, they'd be like, we should probably do something else or, or, or strain it. In 1674, everything changed there. So they would have been looking at a glass and it's clear, and so they'd say, that is clean water. But in 1674, a Dutchman uh, acquired a really brand new, right off the manufacturing factory press, uh, microscope. And he began to look at water under the microscope. And what he found was that there are these, what he called, little twinkling animicules. That was his word he used. And so we would say it's some sort of protozoan or it's some sort of uh, single-celled organism or something like that. But, you know, if you remember back to elementary school and you went on a science experiment uh, field trip and you went down I, where I grew up, we went to Lake Fayetteville and they had a little aquatic center that schools would come into. And, and they would take us around the lake area and we'd see all these different animals. And they'd take us into the science labs and we would look at the water under the microscope and you would see these animalcules under the scope. And so they began to realize the water's not really as clean as we thought it was. See, when we look at the Word of God, it's very much like a microscope. When we turn to the microscope of God's Word, we discover that we might have been, what, what we might have been perceived as clean is, in fact, filled with all sorts of animalcules. What does that mean for us? The Bible tells us, That though we may look at our life and say, you know, I'm doing pretty good. My life is great. I'm not as bad as so-and-so. I'm not as bad as that dude. Maybe not as good as someone else, but I'm okay. But if you look at the Word of God, it's like a microscope that looks deep into the recesses of our hearts. And we perceive that we're in fact sick with sin. The centurion here rightly saw himself as being unworthy to be in the presence of Jesus. So in the same way, we ought to rightly see our own sin and to see our own sinfulness. We dare not think that we're not that bad. We dare not compare ourselves to someone else. We dare not compare ourselves to someone who's caught in what we may think of as a big sin or a gross sin. Who do we compare ourselves with? Jesus. He's the only standard. Because the Bible tells us that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All of us have fallen short of the holy standard of righteousness. So it doesn't matter if I'm a mass murderer or if the only thing I've ever done is steal bubble gum from the convenience store as a six-year-old. Sin is sin. Sin condemns us before a holy God. And so this man here understood that he was a sinner. He was not worthy to be in the presence of the Lord. When we think about that in in connection with our faith, we see that faith requires you and I to see ourselves rightly. We must look through the lens of God's word, and there we will find that God is holy and man is evil and condemned accordingly. But there's a second thing, because that's pretty bleak, right? If you see yourself rightly, that I am uh, undone, right? I, I'm a man of unclean lips, like Isaiah says in Isaiah chapter 6. That I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a dwell among unclean people. I, I'm not worthy of anything. In fact, the only thing I deserve is God's full wrath upon my life. That is the condition of every single human being. And so if that's where we stop, God help us all. But Thankfully, the Bible is full of good news. And so that's the second requirement. Faith requires that we rightly see Jesus. The centurion here rightly saw Jesus as Lord and Savior. He saw him in grace and truth. He saw in him love and compassion. This man believed Jesus would come to heal and to work in his servant's life. Why? Because Jesus is good. Did the servant deserve it? Did the centurion deserve it? No. He says, I'm unworthy for you to be in my presence. But he sees in Jesus goodness. And he knows he will come. And he knows he will heal. The elders in the synagogue came to Jesus and says, You need to help this guy because he's been good to us. And he paid for our synagogue, which would have been a heavy price. But Jesus was not moved by that. And we also see that the centurion as well was not moved by what he did. Never does he say to Jesus, hey, you need to help my servant because I did that. No, that's what the elders said. They had it backwards. But what this man sees is that he sees in Jesus that I can do nothing but fall before his grace. Fall before his goodness. Fall before him in faith and repentance. This man saw the grace of the Lord Jesus being greater than his sin. And so he called upon him in faith. And the assumption is, though Luke doesn't tell us, the assumption is the man, actually he does tell us, I'm sorry about that. Verse 10. The servants who went back to the house found the servant well. In response to this man's words, what does Jesus do? Verse 9. He marveled. And you know there's only two times in the... Gospels where Jesus is pictured as marveling over something. Two times. One we see when Jesus goes back to Nazareth, his hometown, for the first time. And there he marvels over their rejection of him. We dealt with that several months ago. It's an incredible Uh, scene out there. I think I talked about it when I was preaching through that text. But when we were there in Israel in February, we got to walk up to the precipice there. Many people believe that Jesus would have stood and where they were trying to cast him down the side of the mountain onto these big boulders that would have dashed his head to pieces. And Jesus turns and walks through them, passes on through them, but he marvels over their rejection. And then the second time he marvels is right here. When he hears this centurion express deep faith in him as a Gentile and as a pagan, he marvels over that. And he says this about him. Not in all of Israel have I seen such faith. This man believes in and on Jesus. He sees him for who he is. I wonder this morning, do we see Jesus for who he is? Are we trusting and obeying Him as our Lord and as our Savior? Faith, I believe, is a real interesting thing. It requires obedience to the instructions and a willingness to go all in. Go back to that man who's stuck in the desert and stumbles upon an old shack and finds that old squeaky well, and he reads the message and says, here's a bottle. It's full of water, and and so to get water, you need to pour this water into this pump, and then you'll have good, clean, fresh, cool, refreshing water. What did he have to do to get that cool, fresh, beautiful water? Pour it all in. And for us to experience all that God wants us, we have to actually believe Jesus. We have to step out in full faith in what he has said and follow it to the letter. It took all of the water, and it takes all of our faith. So today, all that God promises is available to you and me if we will believe and obey them. Do you know that? That's the benevolence of God, is that he has told us in his word all the things that can be ours probably sitting there thinking, is this a guy turning into a prosperity gospel preacher? Absolutely not. But we need not shy away from the fact that our God is good. Our God is gracious. Our God is benevolent. Our God actually wants to do good stuff for us. I mean, think about what Jesus says. He's like, anybody can give a a good gift. Every good father does that, right? We shouldn't be surprised that God as our father wants to give us good things. So why do we not ask Him for that? Why do we not believe Him for those good things in our life? Now, to get those things, to receive those things, we have to believe Him and to walk in faith, which means to walk in obedience. And so today, what do you need to believe God for? Maybe some of you this morning, what you need to believe God for is your marriage, the truth be told this morning, you're sitting here, you may be sitting next to each other as husband and wife, your kids are with you, but if the truth were told, and if we were sitting as flies on the wall in the house, it probably wasn't a good week. Maybe it's not been a good week for weeks, months even, and you're kind of right there at the end of yourself. What are we going to do? Are we going to step away from one another, or are we going to step toward each other? What do you need to believe God for when it comes to your relationship as a husband and a wife? What do you need to do there? Is it too late? told someone here recently that, unfortunately, in in my experience, I think it's true of most pastors. That when a couple comes to the pastor, or or, or they finally express to their pastor, me specifically, it's usually too late. They'll come and say, hey, we've been struggling for some time, and and it's just, we're just done. We're done. I don't want to do anything else. I don't want to try any harder. It's been years that we've been working on this, and now it's the last resort, and I'm finally hearing about this. And it's too late. What do you need to believe God for? Maybe it's your marriage. Maybe it's your, your finances. And, and so right now, you, everything's expensive. What are you doing with your finances? That's honoring to the Lord. Are you believing God for things? Again, I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher, but I still believe what Malachi 3 says, that if we'll put the Lord first in our finances and honor him with that, he will take care of everything else. You may not have a mansion on a hill, but he'll take care of your needs. And so put it in proper order. Believe God for that. Man, if, I'm telling you right now, in your home, if you would order your finances biblically and, and, and theocentrically, put God at the forefront of that, your life would n- you'd never lack for anything in your life. It might be hard, but God will always provide for you. Always provide for you. Marriage, your finances, maybe it's your health this morning. And what do you need to believe God for? Sometimes we, we go to the doctor, we get bad reports, and so how do we respond to that? I don't know if he'll heal you. We can pray for that, we can ask God for that, we can believe Him for that, but how are you responding to that news? Despair? Despondency? Ma- you know, Anger? You're, you're ticked off, you're going to run from God, you're going to rebel? How do we respond when we don't get the news that we like? I wonder about the servant, what his disposition was. Was he too? leaning into Jesus, or was it just the centurion? I got to believe that the man had an influence in his life. What about your future? Do you believe God for your future? Are you asking and trusting him with your future? Is there a relationship in your life that's not right? Are you believing God for how to navigate that relationship and do what's right? Many times you got to do the hard things to begin to reconcile with a friend or a family member. Are you willing to do the things the Bible lays out to bring restoration and reconciliation there? Or do you just take the easy road and say it's no big deal, you do your thing, I'll do my thing, and you part ways? I don't see that in the Bible at all. What about freedom from a simple besetting sin, something you've struggled with perhaps for years, and you just can't get victory of it? What do you do in that? You do what the Bible tells you. You put it to death. You forsake it and you get help, trusting God and His Spirit to help you to continue to walk in obedience. This morning, here, here's probably the kicker for some, are you trusting God for salvation? I See I think what we see in this picture is nothing about religion. The, the Jewish elders from the synagogue are coming and saying, hey he's built us our synagogue and you got to help this guy and he's a good friend to the Judaism. Jesus is not concerned with that. He doesn't go with them because he's concerned about how favorable he is to the Jewish synagogue. Jesus goes with them because he's concerned about the man's soul and the servant's soul. And that's what the centurion is concerned with as well. He's concerned about him as a person and his servant as a person. And so today, have you ever come to a point in your life where you turn from your sin, from yourself, and in faith trusted Jesus as Lord and as Savior? I've stumbled across uh, an album that I think was released at some point this year. Mac Powell, if you have been a, f- a fan of Third Day, which I've been a fan of Third Day, Christian rock band from the mid 90s, that dates me a little bit. Uh, but their first album is one of my favorite Christian albums of all time. But I came across this album this week on Spotify, and there's a song on the album called 1991. I think, I haven't read up on it, but I think it's Mac Powell's testimony. And he talks about how he was born in 1972, Christmas Day. And he says, I think the line goes something like this. Basically, he's lived for himself from that day on. He did whatever he wanted to do. And it led him to a place of just utter rebellion, just, uh, just a wreck of a life. And then all of a sudden, in the song, he talks about how April 21st or 22nd of 1992, it all changed. What was the change? He turned to Jesus and believed on him in faith. And now everything's changed. Man, I I would encourage you, on the way home, if you do Spotify or Apple Music or something like that, try to find that song. It will bless you tremendously. Mac Powell's teaching us something there in that song that we all, if we're Christians, we know this. If we're not a Christian, you need to know this, that when you come to Jesus, everything changes. Paul says it like this, the old is gone and the new has come. That we're a new creation in Christ. That's what Paul's saying in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this morning, if you've never placed your faith in Jesus, the first thing you and the most important thing you need to do is to turn to Him, believing on Him in faith. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I've made a wreck of my life. I've made a mess of my life. The Bible tells me that I'm condemned, right? Ephesians chapter 2, I'm dead in trespasses and sin. There is absolutely no hope for me outside of what you have told me in your word you've done for me. I read from Hebrews um, 10 earlier where it talked about Jesus stepping in and being the sacrifice for our sins. Today we didn't bring lambs and goats and pigeons and doves to offer a sacrifice for our forgiveness. Where's our forgiveness? It's in Jesus. And if we'll in faith trust him as Savior... Believe on him as Lord. We can be forgiven and made new. Let's pray. Father, this morning, I'm grateful for the gospel and what it means for us. Lord, Paul is right that it is the power of God unto salvation. To the Jew first and to the Greek. That means you and I, the people of us sitting in this room, listening to us online, that we have access to the power of God through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That his death, burial, and resurrection is paid in full, the penalty, excuse me, of our sin. Because of that, Lord, we can walk in faith. Because of our trust in you, our belief in you, and the reconciliation you've made in our life between the Father and ourselves, we can walk in a new life. We can experience the goodness that you want us to experience. We don't have to be shackled in the bondage of sin any longer. God, thank you for this testimony. pray this morning that we recognize Jesus is all-powerful. That he can do what he chooses to do. What the Bible tells us he wants to do is step into our life and be Lord, Savior. Help us to invite Jesus into our life. I pray for those who have never yet come to a saving knowledge, saving understanding of Jesus Christ, that today would be the day for that. I pray for us as believers that have walked with Jesus for some time, that, Lord, every day would be a fresh renewal as we want to set under the authority of Jesus and, and invite the presence of Jesus into our lives. Walk close and clean. So I pray for your spirit to move, and I pray that our hearts would be receptive. Father, perhaps in a room this size with this many people, there's a myriad of different issues. God, perhaps your word has touched on some of those areas, and you're saying to them, believe me for this. Here's what you know you need to do. Here's what my word says. God, give That individual, the faith, to step out and be obedient. How dare we say, Lord, Lord, but not be willing to do what you say in your word. So help us this morning to believe you and to walk in faith.